Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, this is on page 599. We are working, we are working through, in this Advent season, the prophecies of Isaiah, of the Messiah. Uh, this book is sometimes called the fifth gospel, so rich it is in texts about the coming of Jesus. We've already seen in Isaiah 9. The Messiah will bring light into darkness as the son who is given, whose name is the Prince of Peace. Uh, We saw in Isaiah 11 last week, the Messiah will bring life in death as he is the shoot and root of Jesse from the family line of the King David. And uh, this morning we'll see that the Messiah brings alleviation from distress as the shepherd of his sheep. Let me invite you to consider him this morning from Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double. For all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. This is the word of God. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Would you speak to us through it? Lift Jesus before our eyes and draw all to him. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. People who need comfort are people who are in distress. Isaiah is writing about uh, the pronounced judgment against Judah by God for their sins. And it's going to bring great distress on the people. In Isaiah 39, so we're just looking at context here. 
King Hezekiah very foolishly welcomed an envoy from Babylon and opened to him the treasures, the storehouse of Israel. And Isaiah says, you, you acted foolishly and there will come a day when the Babylonians will come back and steal that away from you. And they do, 150 some odd years later. And they destroy even the southern kingdom of Israel. And so uh, here, as you turn from 39 to 40, no sooner has disaster been pronounced, that comfort is heralded. There's the pronouncement of judgment against the sin of one nation, but it will lead to comfort spreading to the whole world in the coming of this shepherd, this Messiah. And so it speaks here of comfort. You know that there are different ways to comfort those who are distressed. The story is told of Queen Victoria when she was reigning in Great Britain. She heard of a common laborer who had lost her baby. Having experienced deep sorrow herself, she was sympathetic and moved by that sympathy. She visited the bereaved woman in her home. She spent some time with her, and after she left, all the neighbors gathered around and asked, what did the queen say to you? And she said, the queen said, nothing. She simply put her hands in mine, and we silently wept together. Sometimes nothing need be said to the distressed. Showing up is all that matters. That's a great consolation. But some comforts can only be communicated with words. The kind of comforts Isaiah speaks here of, where he actually commands that comfort be spoken to the people. The repeated verbs in this text are verbs like speak, cry out, lift up your voice, Say to the cities, right? In other words, preaching. He commands the preaching of comfort. What kind of preaching do you need? You need the kind of preaching, and let me show it to you in four parts. You need the kind of preaching that, verses 1 and 2, gives you the comfort of God's forgiveness. The kind of preaching that, verses 3 to 5, gives you the certainty of God's coming. The kind that, verses 6 through 8, gives you the constancy of God's word. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, that gives you the care of God's shepherd. Let me have you think about that kind of preaching for a moment. Notice verses 1 and 2. You need the kind of preaching that consoles you with the comfort of God's forgiveness. Comfort, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's an arm around the shoulder, to be sure. There's intimacy, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You're mine, I'm yours, I haven't forgotten you in all your distress. And there's tenderness here, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, or, or speak to the heart is the language here. It's language used in, in uh, the romance literature of the Bible. It's the language used... That Ruth says Boaz spoke to her 
when Boaz fell in love with her, decided to love her, and became her lover, he spoke, it says, tender words to her. He spoke from the heart to the heart of Ruth in loving tenderness. This is what God is calling to be spoken over his people. Notice the content of the comfort that is to be spoken. It highlights three things in verse 2. First, speak that her warfare is ended. Now, commentators are all over the place on what exactly that means. It may mean, or it probably, in my own view, refers to the end of the term of her service, or the end of the term of her hard labor, the end of the term of her exile in Babylon. Second, what does it mean that she will receive double for all her sins? Double. What does that mean? It, again, commentators are divided. It could mean double as in ample, as in generous, as more than expected. Paul says grace greater than all our sin. But it also could be picking up on the meaning of double there as two halves. And the picture behind the word is of a cloth folded in half. And the folded half exactly corresponds to the unfolded half. It matches it exactly. Meaning then that all, her, all that her sins deserve has been paid in full. It doesn't come up short of that. But what is absolutely clear, and nobody disputes, is the third part of this comfort, which is that her iniquity is paid for. Whatever the meaning of the others, her iniquity has met with a satisfactory and sufficient payment. A payment by substitute, as Isaiah will go on to speak of, and it's actually hidden in there in the verb. The verb is passive. It's paid for paid for by another and it means that the punishment of her sin has been accepted by God as a satisfactory substitute it's Levitical language it's used in the passive only in Leviticus always in reference to the blood sacrifices of atonement in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4 it's of the blood sacrifice that's acceptable to make atonement for the offer It's referring to that idea. It's paid for by substitute. I have told you, some of you have heard it more than once, of of that civilian during the time of Napoleon who received a draft letter calling him into service in the army. And so he went down to the registration office and he told them that he had previously been drafted and that he had hired a substitute in his place to go and fight in battle for him which was actually not that uncommon in that day and very permissible, and that the man he had hired had fought in battle and died. And so they looked it up and they looked up the name of this guy and it said, died in the person of his substitute on the battlefield of Rivoli. So he was free to go. He didn't have to be drafted again. It was accounted to him. So likewise, this is the kind of language. The term of service is satisfactory and the authorities are satisfied with this substitute in our place this all looks forward of course to the one true final sacrifice of jesus this is what god is promising and you need to hear as judah needed to hear as israel needs to hear as the whole world needs to hear the comfort of god's forgiveness we've got to preach on this 
Donald Cargill, who uh, was a Scotsman in 1647, was about 20 years old. He was going around Glasgow with uh, family uh, visiting relatives, uh, but he was in internal anguish about himself, and he was under conviction of sin. He was feeling the judgment of God hanging over him for his own evil. He was in anguish in his heart over this, and that agony bled over to despair. And he began to think that he did not deserve to live, but deserved hell. And he determined to do away with himself. And so he uh, walked down to the river. But every time he thought of throwing himself in, someone would walk by and disrupt his plan. He couldn't get the privacy he thought he needed to carry it out. And so he went down to the coal mines to a coal mining area that was empty, to an unprotected coal shaft. He decided he would go into one of those. So early one morning, he made his way into one of them. He, he um, very thoughtfully took off his outer clothing because it was in good condition. It was new, and he thought, I'll leave this behind. Somebody else can use it. And so he took off that outer garment, and just as he was prepared to leap into the coal pit, There came a voice, loud, clear, and unmistakable. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that's actually a direct quote from Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, where Jesus says that to the paralytic whose friends brought him for healing. Jesus just says, I forgive you. Cargill says that word, and who knows where it came from. Cargill says that word brought him comfort and assurance all his life long. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. There is nothing like the comfort of forgiveness. And you need a word about Jesus to know that. And you say, but I haven't had experiences like Donald Cargill. I hope you never have an experience like Donald Cargill. You don't need an experience like that. Don't you recognize what we do every Sunday in gathered public worship? After we confess our sins, we hear a word of assurance from God. Sometimes it's Ephesians 1 verse 7 about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Today it was John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Do you see how you need that assurance and how preaching is intended to bring it? That's the first thing you need. Now the second thing you need, the kind of preaching you need, is preaching that consoles you with the hope that we have in the coming of the Lord. Which is what the prophecy turns to at verse 3. A voice cries out in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What's that talking about? When dignitaries came to a city, they had forerunners who prepped the place for it. And ordinarily, because the roads were terrible, you smoothed them, you leveled them, you straightened them to give as proper and dignified and comfortable a coming as you could to the dignitary. 
Now what we know from, and we've been studying Matthew up until Isaiah, we know that John the Baptist actually came in fulfillment of that very text. He came to prepare the way for the Lord. He did so by going out into the wilderness and preaching repentance that people should turn from their sin and turn to the Messiah who was coming. And so, verse 5, what's going to transpire? The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Glory here means something like radiant splendor of the Lord. Alec Motier, in his wonderful commentary, I've told people time and again, it's almost like Alec Motier wrote Isaiah. If you can get your hands on either one of his two commentaries, do so. He says, this is Yahweh in all his glory, not necessarily with awesome manifestations, But in the fullness of his personal presence, the glory of the Lord is coming to his people. And where do you see that? Certainly you will see that, every one of us, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, We are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But the truth is, he's already come. And though that glory was veiled, that glory has come. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. He pitched His tent among us. He tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is where we see the glory of of God. That's Jesus' true identity. The, uh, the, uh, there's a story told of uh, World War II when the Allies were trying to track down German agents. There was, a, there was such a thing as micro dots, a form of communication. It would look like a punctuation mark or a period on a sheet of paper in, in a sentence. You wouldn't think much of it unless you were looking for it. But you would pry it off and magnify it several hundred times and it wouldn't be just a punctuation mark. It would actually contain a complete long letter or list of instructions of some kind to a German agent. But it was all packed into a little micro dot that was barely noticeable on a sheet of paper. It's all there, but it might be veiled, but it's all there. That's the sense, I think, of Colossians chapter 2 about Jesus, 2 verse 9. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Whether you have eyes to see it or not, it's there. Ralph Davis tells the story of a visitor from Europe who showed up at the White House in the early 1800s. He saw a bald-headed man with watery eyes in a dirty seersucker suit and a dirty waistband that was spotted with ink blotches and with slippers down to his feet. And the visitor was appalled that the president would employ such a slovenly clerk until he realized that President James Monroe was before him. He didn't look presidential. He didn't look like the visitor expected, but he was in fact the president. And so it is with Jesus. You 
may not think Jesus is the glory of God on display because at Christmas you're thinking of a feeding trough and you're thinking of a nursing baby swaddling clothes or maybe you're thinking of the humiliation of the crucifixion. You can't imagine how this could be God on a cross. But the Bible says the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. You need preaching that tells you the glory of God has come in Jesus Christ. God fulfills his promises. Thirdly, you need the kind of preaching that consoles you with the constancy of God's word. Notice how the passage turns at verse 6. A voice says, cry. What's this about? It's been taken in different ways. In biblical literature, there are no quotation marks. In Hebrew, there are no quotation marks. The way that quotations are often introduced, it it will say something like, he said, or someone said. And then you know that what follows is to be in quotes. It's usually very obvious what the quoted part ought to be. And so here you have a question. A voice says, cry, quote, end quote. And I said, quote, what shall I cry? End quote in the ESV. Answer, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Do you you understand the the flow then would be the last of verse 6 all the way through verse 8 is the response. What should I cry? Here's what you should cry. All men are like grass. That may be one way to read it. There's a different way to read read it that J.A. Alexander uh, from Old Princeton in 1845 suggested. And that's to keep the whole in quotation marks and to read it like this. And I said, what, quote, what shall I cry? And he keeps going on. All flesh is grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flowers fade because of the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In other words, what shall I cry? The people are grass. What shall I cry? They're temporary, close quote. Verse 8 is the response. The grass withers, yes. The flowers fade, true. But the word of our God stands forever. I commend that version to you, that, that understanding. It's stressing, in other words, the constancy of the word of God in contrast to The impermanence of man. Something lasts, the writer says. Man is temporary, but the word of God lasts. So proclaim it. What word lasts? The word of verse 2. Your sins are pardoned. Your iniquity is paid for. What word lasts? The word of verses 3 to 5. The glory of the Lord is coming. You need proclaim, uh, preaching that kind of proclaims that kind of certainty. Nothing will give you in your life stability like having a word that is constant and certain and the conviction that God's word is true and you can lean the weight of your life on it. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells the story of visiting Spain. And he was outside Madrid at a 16th century, 16th century Augustinian monastery. 
And uh, it was a burial site for kings called El Escorial. And an architect built an arch there that was kind of flat as arches go. And the king said it won't hold. And he demanded that a column be built to support it. The architect responded, it will hold. A column isn't needed. Column isn't necessary. The arch will hold. But the king's the king, of course, and you do what the king tells you to do. And so a column was built. And eventually the king died. And then the architect revealed that the column he had built fell a quarter inch short of actually reaching the arch that was there. It had never once supported the arch. And in Barnhouse's day, four centuries later, the guy took a flat strip of wood and slipped it in there. It was still not supporting the arch because the arch had remained constant. The arch had held. This is kind of what the Bible is saying about the Bible. You and I come and go. The breath of the Lord blows on us and we disappear. But the word of God remains true and constant forever. You can stake your life on it. And so J.C. Ryle tells the story of uh, a man named Cecil who was standing at the deathbed of his mother. And he asked her, are you afraid to die? And she said, no. And he asked her, but doesn't the uncertainty of another state, another state of being, give you no concern? And she says, because God has said, fear not. When you pass through the water, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they shall not overflow. She wasn't afraid. She wasn't afraid because God had said, and she, st- she staked her life upon it. You need the kind of preaching that tells you you can trust a God whose word is permanent. And finally, fourthly, you need the kind of preaching that consoles you with the care of the good shepherd. Notice verses 9 to 11. Go up on a high mountain, verse 9, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. In other words, lift it up with gusto. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities, what? Here is your God. Behold your God. What kind of God? A strong God. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Notice he's strong, he's powerful, he's irresistible. And it says the reward of his wages is with him. This is a reference to the fact that what he has earned accompanies him. When reward is used, says Alec Matier, with a pronoun, the pronoun is the person receiving the wage. The wage is with him, the him is the pronoun, the wage accompanies him. In other words, it's used in other places for a victor getting the fruit of his victory. So the reward is with him means the fruit of the victory of the victor is with him. So the Lord who has come to his people, the Lord Jesus, has come and his recompense, his reward is with him. 
What is his reward for his death and resurrection? His triumph? His reward is you. His reward is his people, his bride, his treasured possession, which he purchased with his own blood. In other words, it's celebrating his victory and our blessing in him because he's the arm of the Lord and he's the strength of the Lord and his arm rules for him. This should give you great comfort. Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and it threatened to drive the vessel and all of its passengers to destruction. And in the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went onto the deck, made a dangerous passage to the pilot house, and saw the pilot at his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly and inch by inch, turning the ship once more out to sea. And the pilot saw the watcher and smiled at him. And so the watcher went back to all the other passengers and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot. And he smiled. All is well. The arm of the Lord is strong. All is well. But notice he's not only powerful, verse 11, he's also tender. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead those that are with young. Like a good shepherd, he cares for each of his according to its need. The little lambs he gathers up and holds close. The ewes who have just given birth, they need special care. He's gentle with them. In every condition, the shepherd knows what his people needs. And in tenderness, he meets them. So what you have here is the picture of a shepherd who is omnipotent and strong, but who is tender and gentle. And you and I need both if we're going to have any comfort. Because if you have a God without strength, there's no comfort in that. You need somebody who can fight the battle for you. It was the story of a young man in London in the 1860s. In the east end of London, Samuel Stone, a minister of the gospel, an Anglican minister, he happened to hear the cry of a girl being attacked by three men, and he rushed to the scene. Stone, in his youth, had trained as a boxer. He was a pretty good boxer. A friend said to him that, of him that he had the muscles of a prize fighter and nerves like strings on a violin. He took one uppercut at one guy and knocked him out with one blow. He began to pummel the other guy and beat him so badly the man cried out for mercy. And the third guy ran away. And Stone later said he'd give five pounds to get his hands on that fellow's hide. This is a minister of the gospel. It's exactly what that girl needed. Don't you think? You know, Stone wrote, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Isn't it wonderful that the fingers that wrote the lyrics to that hymn were balled into a fist to defend the honor of a helpless young woman as he beat the snot out of some wicked men? You might sound, that sounds awfully vicious. 
I think it's glorious. He was right to do so. You have to have that. You have to have a God so powerful he can win every battle. But you have to have a God who's tender, who cares for the weakest and most vulnerable. And that's what you have here. The shepherd who picks up the lambs in his arms and holds them close to his heart. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Not everybody in positions of power exercises their power like that. Historian Paul Johnson in his uh, work uh, uh, on history tells about Lenin, the former Soviet leader, Vladimir Lenin. He came to power in the Bolshevik Revolution. He never visited a factory or set foot on a farm. He was supposed to be concerned for the workers, but he was never seen in the working class quarter of any town in which he resided. He lived as if it's okay to be theoretically concerned for the workers, just as long as you don't have to get down there and live with them, says Paul Johnson. You don't have that with this shepherd. He picks up the lambs. He isn't a pansy. And he isn't a tyrant, so you are secure in his power, and you are warm and safe in his pity. And you need preaching that tells you about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the Good Shepherd. Jesus, thank you that you laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you that you rose victorious. Thank you that our hopes of heaven don't have to be in ourselves, but in you. I pray that you would come to the aid of your people in whatever way we need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.